may have heard that NASA has announced that they are planning to establish a sustained human presence on the moon by the year 2028. Tall order, tall order to say the least. It does mean that they have a, a bit of recruiting that they're going to need to do between now and then to say the least. Uh, the selection process to become an astronaut with NASA is extraordinarily rigorous. Uh, you've got to be in top physical condition. You've got to have some technical skills already proven, uh, a track record of that. Then, of course, there's the training, rigorous, rigorous, rigorous training that you go through for, for years uh, in the classroom, in simulators, out there in the field, Desert, jungle, water, everywhere. It's rigorous. It's just extraordinarily taxing. Why? Why is it so hard, the selection process and the training process, to become an astronaut for NASA? Well, it's very simple. Life out there is a whole lot different than life down here. What it, what it takes, what it means to, to survive and thrive out there in outer space and on the lunar surface is a whole lot different than just everyday, ordinary life down here on the surface of the earth. You cannot afford to transpose, to transfer how you're accustomed to living and being and doing things from here to there without doing great harm to yourself. And so it necessitates this extraordinary training that these men and women have to go through. The reason I bring this up is because of the challenge that is before us as we think about what it means to be in relationship with the true and living God. We make the mistake of transposing, of transferring all the relational dynamics that we have with one another to Him. Now, hear me. It is a relationship that we do have as followers of Jesus, with the true and living God. But the dynamics of that relationship are very different, especially given that he operates by grace. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're picking up where we left off in our study last week. Matthew 21, we're going to just look at this short parable that Jesus teaches in verses 28 through 32, Matthew chapter 21 Verses 28 through 32, it's there on the screen. You can look at it there if you've got a Bible with you. Uh, again, the Gospel of Matthew, it's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have. Hear now the Lord's Word. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, we would ask that you would help us understand 
there is certainly a historical context to this story and to whom you were originally telling it and the situation that caused you to speak as you did, to whom you did, and, and where you did. We ask that you would help us to, to hear. Help us to hear. These, this is not just some bedtime story. This is not some Aesop fable. Uh, this is a, a story told by the, the living God incarnate, walking on this earth, standing there in the temple and speaking, and speaking still. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our, our own spirits, our own hearts here this morning as you have brought us in here. Why? I can't say. I can't know. None of us can really nail down exactly what you have in mind, but you have brought us here. None of us are here this morning by accident or by happenstance. You have plans. You have intention. And we ask that you would press your word in upon us and change us from the inside out. And we ask this in the only name that we can, Jesus, in your name. Amen. This is the time of year when graduation speeches, many are given and almost as many are endured. I came across a, a piece by Patricia Rabin, uh, who made some really good observations in a recent piece in Christianity Today, as she is reflecting on graduation speeches, past and, and presence, and some analysis that's well worth uh, some reflection. So when Apple's Steve Jobs gave the commencement address at Stanford University in June 2005, this is what he said. He pressed the graduates to follow their hearts, quote, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. That sound familiar, that idea, that sentiment? It wasn't completely original to Jobs in 2005, but it has really taken hold and taken off, and there have been many an imitator better than him, worse than him, you know, running with that sentiment, running with that idea ever since. Well, how do we evaluate that? What do we make of it? It's garbage advice, says expert, startup expert Michael Bahanas. One of the great lies of life, billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban says. Cal Newport, author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, says Job's blissful view of life is, quote, not particularly useful. And as though that wasn't bad enough on this sentiment, condemning it, then you have two Stanford University researchers who conducted a 2018 study not far from where Jobs gave his speech years before, and they concluded that following your passion is likely to bring more failure in your life than success. Why do I bring this up? Because there are a lot of things that are often quoted but never questioned. A lot of ideas, a lot of sentiments that are kicked around and quoted and never questioned. 
a lot of fictions that we believe, a lot of poisons that we ingest, a lot of lies, just call it for what it is, pertaining to the spiritual realities of this cosmos, pertaining to who God is and who we are and how we can be in relationship to Him. Brings us to our text. Jesus is pretty pointed in what He is saying here. The context is He is getting some pushback in terms of His authority. Standing there in the temple, we'll come back to that in just a little while. Standing there in the temple, He's getting some pushback. The the chief priests and the, uh, the elders are pressing in on him, essentially asking, where do you get off saying these things and doing these things? Who do you think you are? Well, Jesus is telling them. And he's not holding back. He's answering that question, just who he thinks he is. By what authority and by what right he does and says the things that he does and says, Jesus in this passage is making clear how we may enter his kingdom. He is making crystal clear how we may enter his kingdom. And it is incumbent upon us that we lay aside our own ideas on this and listen to him. It is absolutely incumbent on us to lay aside our own ideas on how we may enter his kingdom and listen to him. It's a very straightforward parable. It's only two points. You can't really make three, four, five out of it. Uh, It's only two points. The first has to do with a warning, and the second has to do with an invitation. Now, the warning is explicit. It's right there. The invitation is as well. It's a little bit more implied, but it is equally there as as well. Let's look at the first, the the warning to the one. Something like this. Despite whatever it may be that you want to believe about salvation, about standing, about security with the living God, you need to understand that salvation is never by works. Standing security before God can never be by works works. Let's look at this parable again. It's so short. I'm going to read it like at least once or twice more before we're done because the points are just so interwoven, you really can't pull them apart. I I, I tried. You you really just, just can't. And it's short, so we can handle it. Again, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? I said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's look at the second son first. Let's look at the second son first. How would you describe him and his 
engagement, his response to the father in the story. He is clearly a man concerned with appearances and appearances only. He says one thing and does something completely different. He's concerned about how he looks. He is concerned, and I don't mean like his appearance in the mirror. We're talking about outward righteousness and piety with no concern for inward integrity and truth. He's preoccupied with the show, with how he looks. Now, how, is he, how would he have been assessed by Jesus' hearers? Of the two sons, he is clearly, his response is clearly the worst of the two. Clearly the worst of the two. No, we don't see an, an, an utter initial refusal, such as the other son, such as his brother, but we do see ultimately a terrible deceit on his part. Now, who does he stand for? Who does he represent? What does Jesus have in mind? in this story. Well, if you go back and look just a few verses earlier in Matthew 21, go to verse 23, and you see this is what sets all this up, this dialogue between Jesus and these other folks. Who are these other folks? Well, verse 23, when he entered, this is Jesus, when he entered the temple, this is there in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And that's what sets in motion this dialogue between Jesus and these men, this question that they put to him. Who are they? They are members of the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish Supreme Court there at, in, in those days. They were in charge of settling, overseeing the religious questions, the political questions, the civil questions, the social issues of the day. That's their charge. These chief priests, this is the priestly aristocracy, the elders, they are members of the, the families of highest standing in the community. These are men who are respected and revered. They are prestigious and empowered. And Jesus says, they are the second son. This had to have been absolutely shocking to everyone listening. Everybody but Jesus. Absolutely shocking and, and offensive. Bracing for them to hear. But it is a warning. Jesus is giving them a, a warning. Again, whatever else you may think in terms of security and standing and being salvation before the true and living God, it is not by works. And it cannot be. It is not enough. Your outward righteousness and piety is not enough. It is not enough to make promises to God. It is not enough to claim to believe. It is not enough to recite a creed. It is not enough to do good things. It is not enough. He is calling for true devotion. He is calling for love. He is calling for love for God and love for neighbor. He is calling for an, something on the inside that tracks with what you're doing on the outside. 
Those are strong words. Very strong words. But we cannot get under, from underneath the thumb, if you will, of what Jesus is saying here. And what's so clear in terms of what he is saying here. And my friends, surely no few of us here this morning need to hear this. This warning from Jesus. What you think is enough is not and never will be. Some of us here this morning need to hear that warning. The warning that he gives to the religious and the pious. Jesus is making clear how we may enter his kingdom. We need to lay down our own ideas on this and hear him. It takes us to the next point because there's another son, another son in this story. And whereas the the driving force with the first son has to do with a warning, the driving force with the second son has to really more to do with an invitation, an invitation. So, whereas with the message to the first son, the the pious and the religious, it is, despite whatever it is that you may want to believe, the message to the other, to the sinner, the one who knows himself to be a sinner, is despite whatever else you may fear, it is not by works. It's not by works. Again, let's read the story again. Starting back in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. All right, what's going on here? This first son, what's going on? Well, unlike, completely unlike the second son, he cares nothing about appearances. He is much more concerned with being I'll just impute a 21st century verbiage here. Authenticity. Reality. He cares nothing about pretending or or presumption. He outright just says, nope. Not going to do it. He just flat out refuses to do what his father asks him to do. He starts so poorly. He ends well. But he starts so, so poorly. He comes back. He comes back. And he is the one whose example is held up here. Not the other brother, but this first brother. Now, how would he have been assessed? How would Jesus' hearers have have said? We don't have to guess. We can see it. But even in the culture, the reason that the assessment is given as it is is because of the culture. That refusal, initial refusal by this first son, oh my goodness, would hardly have been something commendable. This was insanely disrespectful for a son to just 
disobey it, just to disrespect the Father in, in that way. But again, that is the response. In the end, because he ended up doing what he was supposed to do, responding in the way he was supposed to, his response is the one that is held up as the one that is exemplary, the one that we should be thinking about. Who does he stand for? Who does he represent? Well, certainly not the righteous and the pious. Certainly not the religious ones. But the sinners. The ones who know themselves to be sinners. And are not living under any false delusion. Who are they? Who are these people that Jesus is being? The tax collectors. What is, this is far worse than just being an IRS agent. In this context, first century Roman context, to be a tax collector was to be really a collaborator with an enemy-occupying army. It was to be known as a greedy individual who cares nothing about the welfare of their fellow citizens and, in fact, had betrayed their fellow citizens and their confidence in the community. So that's what it meant to be a tax collector. Now, what about a prostitute? Well, that's kind of obvious, but we just, let's just be explicit and plain about it. Sex is a good gift of God. It is not something to be bought and sold freely and flippantly as a commodity. It is something that is to be kept and treasured solely in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it's for. So you have the, the, the tax collector who's defying everything in terms of what life is supposed to look like, and, and much the same with the prostitute. How were they regarded in that context? As the scum of society. That's how they were thought of. As the lowest of the low. Anything but heroic individuals anything but model citizens. No one would think for a minute of making them, if you will, the heroes of the story. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Holding them up in their response as the, the, the model, which is exemplary. Jesus is saying, look at the first son. Again, this is so shocking. But here is the invitation. Here is the invitation. Anyone, anyone can repent and believe and enter the kingdom. Anyone. That's the invitation. So come. What are you waiting for? Come. As the old song says, if you tarry till you're better, you won't come at all. So come. Whereas with the warning to the second son, the pious, the religious, the righteous one, the warning to them is it is never enough. What you think is sufficient will never be enough the invitation to the one who knows themselves to be broken and a sinner in the sight of God is that it is never too late. 
it is never too late, and it doesn't matter what you've done. So come. So come. There is no doubt in my mind there are some in this room that need to hear that message this morning. Not just the warning, but the invitation. Jesus, Jesus is the one who is making clear how we may enter his kingdom. Oh, how we need to lay down what we think of how that works and listen to him. In many ways, what he is saying here is the same thing to both sons, to both parties, to the righteous religious one and the sinful broken one. You both need to repent. You both need to believe. You both need to turn, to turn from your self-righteousness, to turn from your self-dependency, to turn and to turn back to the one who made you and made you for himself. And I just put it this way, the only way forward for any of us is the path of repentance. The only way forward for any of us is the path of repentance. John Stott is a man, some of you may be familiar with him, some of you may have read some of his books. He's was a prolific author. There's no few commentaries, commentaries, but quite a few other books over the course of the 20th and early part of the 21st century. Died just a few years ago. John Stott, though, among many other things, was an avid bird watcher. And one of his books, it's not easy to find, but, but if you look for it, you can find it. It's called The Birds Are Teachers. And in that work, he makes this observation. All over the world, the same mysterious north-south, south-north pattern of bird migration is repeated. The most extraordinary example is the Arctic tern, breeding in northern Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Lapland, and Siberia. It winters as far south as the southernmost tips of South Africa and South America. Although it weighs only about four ounces, it flies from the Arctic to the Antarctic, and back again every year, which makes a round trip of some 22,000 miles. The most extensive migration of any bird. Nearly as sensational is the American golden plover. Those whose nesting ground is in Alaska cross about 2,000 miles of open ocean, non-stop, to the Hawaiian Islands, while some even fly on to Australia and New Zealand. Those which breed in the eastern Arctic, however, fly nonstop from Labrador to Patagonia, which is about 2,800 miles. Thus it is that birds observe the time of their migration and do so with extraordinary regularity and precision. And what birds do by instinct by inbuilt, inherited migrational skills which scientists have not yet fully fathomed, we human beings should do by deliberate choice.
returning from our self-centered ways to the living God, our Creator. Friends, Stott was right. The birds are our teachers. The birds are our teachers. Think of how God loves us in, the way, in that he has given us such reminders. Just look up in the sky at the appropriate time and season and watch those little feathered messengers as they migrate. Every year in the, in the seasons, in the way that he has designed things, he is giving us these reminders, the reminder of the need to turn that we all have to turn to him, but not just of our need, but as we see his creation and we see those birds moving and those messengers, that, that timely messenger and reminder is a reminder not just of our need, but of his mercy, of the character, of the invitation, of, the, of, of who it is that we are turning towards. We are turning to Jesus. That's who is calling us to turn and who receives us and receives us so well. Jesus makes clear what it means, how it is that we can enter his kingdom. Oh, that we would lay aside our ideas on this and turn to him. Let's pray.